Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, where are we with COVID-19? Heading for lockdown. The premier is getting testy with the prime minister. We need more vaccine. And are you losing sleep during this global pandemic? We'll help you doze off. It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Everyone's had enough of COVID-19 and its restrictions. Dad and I are setting up a card table downstairs in front of the TV for a peaceful Friday night KD dinner. Without the girls, COVID-19 has shown the importance of a basement or even a garage, a garden shed, a tent, a tree fort. Okay. No way! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Uh, Yes, it's Kurt and I uh, broadcasting live from the swing set that I didn't take down that I told you I did a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Good afternoon. It is 1211. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping us between the pipes as we wind up week number uh, 53 of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, You can do so via the website. Send us a note, scottthompson at 900chml.com. All right. First, uh, before we get started, we're going to bring Paul Johnson in, Director of Emergency Center with the City of Hamilton, but want to play you a clip uh, from earlier this morning. This is on uh, the Bill Kelly Show. And on the Bill Kelly show, uh, the mayor was speaking uh, in regard to, uh, well, COVID-19, where we are, and um, is it possible that we could end up uh, in, in, in a different uh, situation than what we are now? The, uh, the variant is uh, very concerning. Uh, we're thankfully not seeing the level of death now that we have in the past, and certainly the vast majority of our elderly population and uh, those in long-term care and in retirement homes have been vaccinated and that's that's certainly the good news uh, but we're also seeing that uh, folks between the ages of 20 and 50 are now uh, you know the higher higher category of people contracting covid that uh, that obviously leads us to those additional concerns so short answer is i don't know uh, uh you know we'll, we'll have it we'll have a i think a better understanding at once the uh, provincial medical officer of health makes their decision and uh typically they've made these announcements uh, on a friday so it's possible today but uh, i'm not certain that it's going to happen today all right, that's the mayor speaking with Bill Kelly this morning on his uh, monthly town hall with Bill. Let's bring in Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center, City of Hamilton. Paul, how are you? Hope you're doing well. I'm doing as well as, as everybody can, and happy 53-week anniversary for the home show, Scott. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you, I think. Yeah, what do you do with these? Do you, I think you just march, you know, just mark these on the wall. It's like, uh, you know, it's not like you can really celebrate, but boy, will it be a big one coming out the other end of this, I'm telling you, Paul. Absolutely. We're going to have to be opening up the first on Stereo Center for a giant party when this all ends. Uh, obviously, Dr. Tam, uh, some some more you know uh, negative news today in regard to the third wave. Uh, obviously, we heard what the mayor said, and we've heard what Dr. Richardson has been saying. So, what are your thoughts right now? Where we are? Uh, well, we are seeing two things go up. One thing we wanted to go up, and that's the number of vaccines. We're getting more and more vaccines in people's arms. The other thing we didn't want to see go up, and that's a rising number of cases. And just to put this in context, Scott, when we exited out of the stay-at-home order, as a city, we were in the 30s per 100,000 in terms of new cases per week. Now we're in, as of yesterday, at 110 per 100,000 new cases per week. And so you, you think about those, um, uh, those numbers, and that's more than tripling in the period from the shutdown until now we're going in the wrong direction so it's it's tough uh, you mentioned it uh, there's there's issues that are occurring in terms of hospitalization and the and the amount of people that are in hospitals and there's a tightening up of those healthcare resources and that's always the concern we have is that our healthcare resources do not get overwhelmed to a point at which other issues that people are dealing with because there's lots of other health issues are impacted because of the the pressure that's on the healthcare system uh, we are also at this point with 34 active outbreaks at the city of Hamilton. So it's a, it's still a crisis. Uh, we're still in a local state of emergency and all, every day we get up and do two things, manage the crisis as well as continue to push as many 
uh, vaccines uh, out to our clinics so that people can get uh, that vaccine. It's it's the only way we're going to see these numbers start to uh, come down. If there is the silver lining in it, and you heard the uh, mayor talk a little bit about it, is we've seen the impact of the vaccination strategy in some of our most vulnerable environments, uh, mainly long-term care uh, homes and, and high-risk retirement homes, where the vaccine strategy that rolled out very early, starting in December, has uh, made a, a tremendous difference. Uh, we also have heard, and, and you know, as you mentioned, uh, hospital capacity is the big issue here, and 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 filling those ICUs. Uh, and, and unable to care for other patients that have other medical needs and such. Uh, we're understanding that ha- uh, that Hamilton is not taking any more out-of-town patients. Can you add any more to that? I can't add much more in terms of the overall decision-making. Uh, that's, that's for Hamilton Health Sciences to do. But the reality is Hamilton Health Sciences is... Is, uh, is feeling the pressure of just the volume of people that are in their, their facility and the impact of COVID-19, including dealing with, uh, with some outbreaks in their facilities and some of the, the areas of their facilities. So, you know, not surprising that, that hospitals in various parts of the province, uh, are feeling the pressure. We've uh, seen that for weeks and, uh, uh, and, and certainly Rob McIsaac and his team have been signaling that, uh, you know, they're not in a position where there's, there's, lots of, of free space and, and everything's in a in a very you know smooth way they are they are dealing with a, with a, an increase of people and they're having to to adjust uh, in order to make sure that they can provide all of the care that they need to do we have to remember that our hospital systems are not simply there for covid-19 they're there for so many other things and they need to keep that capacity functioning and that's always when people say why are we doing all of these things the restrictions and the pieces a big part of it it's obviously to protect the health and well-being of people. That's that's paramount. But the other side of it is that we have to make sure that our healthcare systems are not overwhelmed, and that's the challenge you would have if you were to say just, well, let's just see where the cases go without restriction. Uh, you get into a situation that would be very poor from a healthcare perspective. And anything, and I know this isn't your uh, your ballpark, but again, just through the city on on mobile uh, uh, on the field hospital type units, uh, where that is all at. Um, so right now it's still working within the, the existing hospital systems and they have right. some surge capacity that's been built in throughout the pandemic. And I think all the things you're seeing, although it's, you know, it's, it's certainly headlines that grab your attention. Uh, the system is, is holding its own, but we need mm-hmm. to be on top of the number of cases. We need to figure out ways that we can continue to try and blunt uh, the number of people that are being infected by COVID-19, which does lead to uh, a certain number of people and, and potentially ending up in a hospital. So all of that work right now, I, I don't think anybody's in panic mode. We're just trying to do the right things as an entire community uh, to protect the various systems that we need to have in place while we continue to push out this vaccine. Okay, so let's uh, give a bit of an update on the vaccine, Paul. Uh, first of all, let's talk about how you get one. What's, I, I know we're being repetitive here, but we want to get this message out. No, it's really important. And the best way to, to really understand all the people that are eligible for vaccines is to uh, go to the city's website and, and in the vaccine section, we have all the information that you need. But from an age-based perspective, uh, anybody who is 75 years or older is already eligible to sign up and, and book a time to come for a vaccine. And so that's the population and the age-based piece that uh, that we're in at the moment. And uh, certainly there have been reports of other areas moving to 70-plus in Hamilton. We're still at 75-plus, and we'll, uh, we'll await uh, uh, word from the province as to when that would change. So right now, anybody 75 uh, or older. And then there are a number of uh, really critical workers uh, in critical positions in, the, in our community who are still eligible to receive that as well. And those are people that work in certain elements of our hospitals, obviously long-term care, uh, and a growing number of, of some of those first responder type positions that we have in the community, including those that are in vaccine clinics. So those are the folks that are eligible right now. But as I say, the, the full list is on our website. And also, uh, you know, an extension and, and work has happened to uh, move into the adult population for uh, our Indigenous community as well. So it's uh, great for people to look online. Uh, that's where the information is because there are a lot of subsets, Scott, as we go forward. And it isn't yeah. as simple as saying yeah. it's just this age group or it's just yeah. this population. A number of people are eligible. If you're not eligible, though, please don't try and book. Please don't call us. 
Uh, the time will come. We'll all get the vaccine in time, but there has to be a priority setting. And, and uh, that is also driven by the province, and, and we follow that locally. What can you tell us about the pop-up clinics that are going around to uh, outlying areas? Yeah, pop-up clinics have uh, been in operation before. Uh, they come and go, so they're not something unlike First Ontario and St. Joseph's and, and Hamilton Health Sciences and Rosedale that will operate more on a permanent basis while we're doing our vaccine program, uh, you know, every day and every week. Uh, the pop-ups uh, do come and go. And so, uh, you know, starting next week, we're going to see some more of those clinics available through the uh, uh, into the Easter weekend. And just a reminder that uh, we really don't take time off on this. So uh, vacation days and stat holidays are not times off for our vaccine clinics. Uh, one day wasted is another few thousand people that don't get the vaccine. So our folks are working incredibly hard. They are in places like the Salt Lake Community Center, uh, Harry Hall Arena, uh, the Dundas Community uh, Center, and those types of places. Again, all on the website. If you can book through our booking tool, great. If you need to call the hotline uh, at Public Health um, and press option 7 to get to the vaccine hotline, uh, you can do that as well if you have some troubles booking. So there are appointments coming, and we are looking at uh, spreading some more appointments out over the next couple of weeks. And all of that has to be balanced off against supply. We do not have an endless supply of vaccine at the moment. And so uh, there will be uh, points at which our bookings are curtailed, uh, not because we don't want to offer those up, but because we're not sure that we'll have the vaccine. And we would never want somebody to have a booked appointment and then get a call that says, uh, sorry, we don't have the vaccine and we have to cancel. Uh, we certainly remember, Paul, during the first and, and second waves and uh, perhaps more the second when we got a handle on uh, what this was or at least trying to identify it, what we could do to, to pr- protect ourselves against it and such. Uh, unfortunately, we, we saw a trend where the new cases were largely uh, younger people, meaning, you know, 20 to 40, somewhere in there. Uh, and, and now we're seeing with new variants and obviously the vaccination of the older folks and especially the long-term care who were, who were so vulnerable that we're really seeing an increase in cases in younger people and especially with the variant would appear, which appears to be more fatal. What are your, what are your thoughts and concerns, uh, especially as we head in the, into the weekend for, for young people, be, you know, considering that, uh, they are starting to take up more, uh, the majority of the hospital space now? Well, I think it's a reminder that the public health measures and the ways that we can stop this virus apply to everybody, regardless of your age. And uh, you really need to follow those those health and safety measures. They're particularly important for workers. And I know that there's a lot of workers that are in positions where those are the things that are going to keep them safe following these measures. But for all of us, as we go out and, and interact in the community, it's important for us to follow this, uh, you know, It sounds cliche, but it is pretty straightforward how you can protect yourself from this virus if you keep your distance, if you wear a mask and ensure that you're in areas where other people are wearing their masks, if you're in close proximity, if you limit your contact to those who you live with and have very limited contact with others, uh, not entertaining people over all the time and doing those types of things, if you you know, don't go out when you're sick, those types of things, and encourage other people, if you know who they are sick, tell them not to go out, except if they're going to get a test or go see a healthcare provider. If we do those things, that's how it stops. I mean, the reality of the stay-at-home order was when we got really aggressive with not moving around and staying at home, uh, you saw a, a dip in the number of cases, and those are the things that work. And so whatever we're doing, however we're doing it, uh, you know, people need to think once. One thing they need to consider is, am, is what I'm doing really essential to do? And if it isn't, maybe think twice about doing it. And then the second piece is when I go and do it, what precautions am I going to take and what precautions am I going to look to see what others are doing, which would then say to me whether I continue to do that activity or not. If you go somewhere and it's crowded and there aren't people wearing masks, leave. It's the best way to protect yourself. Mm. But wear a mask. Keep your distance. Wash your hands regularly. Don't touch your face. Don't go out if you're sick. These are the core messages, you know, 53 weeks in, maybe 54 weeks in. Uh, we need to continue to do those. You know, it's interesting you say that, Paul, because, you know, a year ago, the message was very confusing. Nobody knew what to do, but we certainly can't use that excuse anymore. I think we all no. know the protocol now, right? <laughs> we do. And, uh, you know, it's 
it's also amidst all the other changing things that have gone on around us, those things remain at, at its core and, and, and we really do need to, to follow them. There isn't any magic to this virus. We know how it's transmitted and the experts in infectious disease tell us that this is the way it's transmitted and we can take absolute precautions. And most of us can keep ourselves really well protected from uh, from getting this virus. And that's also why we prioritize people who work in certain areas uh, who can't always keep that, that ultimate protection. That's why they're prioritized for vaccination. So that's, you know, it's going to be the story over the next few months is protect yourself, protect others, uh, wait for your eligibility for vaccine, get the vaccine when you're eligible, uh, get whatever vaccine is offered to you. And uh, that's how we're going to get through this over the next few months. Paul Johnson with us, Director of Emergency Center with the City of Hamilton. Paul, you and the staff, thanks so much. We really do appreciate it. Be well. Try to get some rest this weekend. Thank you very much, Scott. Variants of COVID-19 double the risk of someone being admitted to intensive care. Not only that, they increase the risk of death by 60%. That according to new analysis from Ontario's science table, which is expected to be made public next week. The CBC is reporting that the numbers are based on Ontario hospitalizations and death data between December and March. The data does not point out which variants are of most concern, but most of the cases we have in Ontario right now are thought to be B117, first identified in Southeast England. Several sources tell the CBC the analysis will also show that COVID-19 hospital patients are skewing younger. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Very concerning. Let's bring in Dr. Alan Baseman, infectious disease expert with the University Health Network and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for having me. Uh, doctor, we heard from Dr. Tam this morning on her news conference, and uh, you could certainly tell by the tone in her voice that she was very concerned uh, about these new variants. We've been talking about these for a long time, but something that stuck, uh, stood out that what she said is uh, 60% more fatal. Can you, can you elaborate on that in any more way? Yeah, so since the pandemic began, the virus has slowly been mutating, but these variants have become mutating most recently in December and January. Uh, based on data that came out of the United States and now in Canada and the UK, it looks like those individuals who acquire the virus with a variant are more likely to have bad outcomes. And this is exactly the most uh, scary thing about them is because the, the thing that the pandemic revolves around is the number of hospitalizations and the number of people who die around uh, due to COVID. So if these variants are more likely to kill an individual, it makes it even more concerning that we have more of them around in Canada now. And we certainly remember in the latter part of the first and, and second wave and such that when we were monitoring new cases, a lot of those new cases were with the younger uh, generation, younger population, 20 to 40, more in around there. Uh, and that's who this seems to be affecting as well as we see younger people ending up in hospitalization. Yes. As a result, of, for various reasons, including having the elderly population more vaccinated, we're seeing more younger people. Uh, affected by the virus and having a high mortality rate is also very concerning in that group too. So uh, how does it, I mean, is at, is it as fatal in younger people as it is in older people? Are there any that are more prone to this? Yeah, it's a good question. So definitely there is uh, an inverse relate or there's a relationship between the higher mortality and the older you are. There's no doubt about that. But the problem is that the whole, uh, that whole relationship is just taken up a bump with the variants of concern. So you will still have a higher mortality rate if you are elderly and have a variant of concern. But for the younger populations, all things equal, if it's a variant of concern, your mortality rate is higher. And within that population, with these variants, with having COVID, the ones who are most likely to have a bad outcome are going to be those individuals who have other comorbidities, who have other health problems, and put them at risk for getting even more complications when they get the virus. We remember way back when, um, when we saw these new cases and, and started learning more about this and how it spread and the protocol. It's, we were just talking to our, our, uh, our chief medical emergency table person here in, in the city. And a year ago, you know, everybody was wondering what the protocol it was or is, was at the time. And now certainly we all know, uh, what the protocol is. It, I mean, there's no, there's no excuse for that. But we remember, um, that we were concerned again because the younger people kind 
kind of the younger generation wasn't getting the message that, you know, it's an old person's uh, disease, you know, uh, you know, it's not going to really affect us. And, and it was really difficult to manage uh, those new cases. Now, those new cases that we saw last wave or so, those are the ones that are ending up in hospital. Are they getting this message? Is that demographic getting this message? Yeah, that's a great point. And it's interesting you say that comparing to the when the pandemic started a year ago, because this feels now in March 2021 feels almost the same as March 2020, where we're almost reinventing the wheel, having to discuss the same things, except now the virus is even more deadly. Hmm. And exactly as you said, for that younger age group, getting that message across is so important. The difference now, of course, is that going a year into this, that message is such that much harder to deliver because they've been through so much stress over the last year. It's been so hard for people to be able to follow the rules that it's going to be a real challenge now to have to go through any kind of any additional restrictions, with, especially with younger people. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's going to be a huge challenge. I, I don't know what the best way to do that is. Uh, and, well, that, there's the, the million-dollar question right there. So obviously we are hearing uh, more and more, uh, what was it, uh, we're at 2,169 new cases today. Uh, unfortunately, 12 families have, have lost somebody as a result of this in the last 24 hours. Um, how do you feel about where we are as far as uh, and the message we're getting, it seems, from, from local health officials is, you know, we're, we're aware of this, we're monitoring it, but we're really trying not to head into a lockdown scenario for the obvious mental health and, and, and so many other reasons that, that we've all talked about. Are we, are we balancing this at this point? Or, you know, as I heard one doctor say, you know, you don't wait till after you're attacked to mount your defense. Uh, yeah, it's a big problem. Um, I think that people need to realize that with the cases rising, with the VOCs rising now, that we're essentially still back to where we were previously in the waves. It's very unfortunate that we're going to have to have that messaging again and potentially go back to lockdowns and restrictions because, you know, the problem is that people get kind of immune to the message, but they don't, it, people don't think about it this way, but essentially it's like having a natural disaster occur every single day. The numbers that you've quoted in terms of the people who have died. This is happening every single day. Imagine like an earthquake hitting Ontario every day or uh, a tsunami or a hurricane. We're getting that every single day. This is a crisis of epic proportions. So people, unfortunately, just have to accept that idea that we might be going back in that direction. And it's unfortunately looking even worse than it did in the first and second waves, given how rapidly the cases are rising this time around. Um, Just listening to you talk there, doctor, it's almost as if... It's a new pandemic. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's it's interesting how we're yeah. the view and the the review of the data, looking at the mortality rate. It's all being reviewed again this time around because of these variants. It's it does feel like a whole new thing again. The only thing that we have that's going to save us is the vaccination, of course, and the vaccination, which is the only way out of this, is going very slowly in the province and across Canada compared to many other nations. So this tool. I mean, that, that is the difference between this one and all the other ways. We have a tool to get out of this, but it's just happening way too slowly. Um, are we putting too much, uh, are we putting too much faith in that tool? Um, will the vaccine get a handle on this? Or by the time we get the world vaccinated, we'll need another one for a different one. Yeah, it's certainly possible that we're going to need to modify this vaccine if there are variants that are escaping. But as for the situation now in Canada, the predominant variant is very responsive to the vaccine. And we know that this is our way out. The numbers from the vaccinations are so impressive. You couldn't imagine this, your wildest dreams. You couldn't imagine how good this would have been only a few months ago, that in the trials, those who are vaccinated with two doses not a single person from any of the four vaccines approved in Canada, not a single person died, not a single person was hospitalized. So as long as we have the vaccines rolling out, you know, sustained and elevated very quickly, then this is the way out. This is how we can return to normal, at least in Canada and hopefully across the world. Uh, the uh, Auditor General has uh, released a report on how we did through all of this. 
Uh, and again, you know, I, I don't think there's a game plan for this. On the other hand, uh, there certainly were recommendations and perhaps a game plan uh, after SARS, and it seems that we did not learn uh, enough about that. What can we learn from this experience? Yeah, I think the one of the major findings from the learnings from SARS was about the acute care side, about how to improve infection prevention and control in the acute care side. And that was certainly much better done this time than it was in SARS. The major other area which was not well prepared for was long-term care facilities and congregate care settings. That is the major area that Canada fell down and even compared to other Western nations. The rate of mortality in that group was extremely high and the rate number of cases was extremely high. So that that is one of the major areas of learning that hopefully will be repaired come the next pandemic. And the second was was our ability to do things in-house, in-country, that we don't need to rely on other nations. It started off last year with PPE, and it continues to this year with vaccinations. I think those those two are going to be the major learnings from all of this. Uh, so moving forward, um, will you be surprised if people say way in the future, we didn't learn enough from COVID-19? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's always going to be mistakes made for sure. Um, and it's always hard to anticipate what the next pathogen is going to be like. You know, SARS was a respiratory uh, illness. This is also respiratory as the same kind of uh, virus. But who knows what the next one might be. If it's transmitted in other ways, then we have to be very able to pivot and change your approach. But there are some principles that I think are common to all uh, pandemics, being able to test, being able to isolate, being able to contact people. Those are principles that Canada needs to be able to follow up on. Similarly, the production of all of these medicines, PPE, vaccines, that all that all has to be prepared to be done within Canada. So Certainly nobody... No, go ahead, go ahead. So hopefully Canada learned from this, but you know, there's no telling with the way politics works. Um, obviously, we have heard, especially when this started, that uh, this could be the new world. Not to depress everybody on a Friday, <laughs> that uh, this could be a new world. And, uh, you know, the sorts of viruses could be a new world, uh, vaccines, uh, the wearing of masks. Or do you think two, three, four years from now, when we've hopefully learned our lesson and done whatever we've needed to do, that we'll look back at this time and go, remember that year when the world was literally ground to a halt? Or is this, uh, you know, not the new normal, but something that we're going to be dealing with? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, of course, very hard to say. I think some elements are here to stay, like some degree of masking during at least some parts of the year. In some settings, like in hospital and other close people, the police people are close to one another. I think masking will, to some degree, extend for longer periods of time. As for the social distancing and, you know, the lack of having bars or clubs or restaurants or sporting events, that's likely to be coming back, maybe modified, but still to some degree, we're going to have those things again. Even in the United States, we already have recommendations from the CDC saying that anyone who's vaccinated can be congregating with one another without masks, yeah. without social distancing. So we already have a trend in the United States, and the CDC, of course, is very well respected making that recommendation. So we're already seeing trends towards normal. The simple problem is the up vaccine uptake. So with any pandemic that we encounter in the future, whether life returns to normal or not, will all depend on whether we can have a vaccine that's effective and whether everyone will take it. And that's going to be the limiting factor. Um, when will we know how effective these vaccines are in their current form against these new virus, uh, variants? Because, you know, many are saying, well, the, you know, they're scared that the variant won't, uh, won't be affected by the vaccine. We haven't really heard that. The, the vaccines seem to be getting a handle on the variants or certainly reduce the risk. And I understand they actually adjust these as they go from, from year to year and such. So how do these, how are these variants stacking up against the vaccine? Can the vaccine still handle these? The predominant variants in Canada, absolutely. The vaccines that we're currently using in Canada, they can protect Canadians against it. That's the B117 that originated in the UK. The two other predominant, or at least more common amongst the others, uh, the Brazil and the South African variants, are thought to be, at least in partly, less effective. That uh, that number is really not clear yet. Um, it will, to answer your question, when will we know? We will know if those variants become the predominant strains. 
if the B117 remains mm. the predominant strain, then we may not know that well because those other strains are simply not common. But if it happens that those become predominant in the future, and we're seeing a very slight kind of signals coming from British Columbia that those strains are rising, then we will know how effective they are. It's not to say that they're not effective at all, because certainly based on in vitro data and some clinical data, they, they're at least partially effective. So it is still the way out of this. It will still go a long way to have Canadians vaccinated, even against these new variants. So, doctor, obviously, we still don't know, once we all get these vaccines, how long they will last, because we're just not there yet, as far as that research. It's, 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 it happens as it goes. Um, so, what happens then? All of a sudden, oh, whoa, 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 everybody, line up again. <laughs> the people that started first, we need you back, we gotta do it again, uh, for right. round two. You know, just very much like a flu shot type of thing. Exactly. So we can use the current existing models we have for annual flu vaccinations to use for COVID vaccination if we needed to. So if we find that there's a new variant and we're able to modify the vaccine to be able to attack the new variant or to protect us against it, then it'll it'll kind of develop into a flu model shot where you have an annual or semi-annual vaccination plan. You have it through pharmacies, through hospitals, through physicians' offices to make sure that the whole population is protected. And for whatever reason, flu just became kind of part of the norm of society over the last hundred or so years. Every year we have several thousand people dying of flu. Hopefully, as a result of the pandemic, that is that kind of thing is no longer acceptable. And we will have these recurrent um, campaigns to vaccinate people to protect them if it does, in fact, become necessary. So obviously there's a lot of uh, a lot of monitoring being done of these of the people who got the vaccine first and can show us this information the earliest. Exactly. With most of these clinical trials, they have the funding available to track them for long periods of time. So the Pfizer and Moderna vaccination trials occurred in the summer and fall. So all those people are still technically being followed. Furthermore, even beyond that, that's that's probably less than 100,000 people, but even beyond that, we have now millions of people being vaccinated. For example, in Israel, they, the Pfizer the agreement between Pfizer and the country was that Israel would give them all their data, which means that we're going to be able to get millions of people's yeah. data to see how effective the vaccine in the long run, six months, 12 months, 18 months after vaccination happens. So would you bring those who are first vaccinated in and test them to see how effective it still is? Uh, I'm just, I'm certain that people will do those trials. Uh, so for scientific reasons, academic purposes, they will probably take a sample of those people and test right. their antibodies. But whether or not it'll need to be done on a, on a whole system level, on the population level, will depend on whether we have recurrences of cases. If, say, in 12 months from now, we have very few cases and very few hospitalizations, then not much needs to be done outside of surveillance and monitoring. Uh, but if we have recurrences of cases, then we're going to have to figure out well, of the people who get the cases, what's their story? Did they get vaccinated? Which vaccine did they take? How many doses did they take? What's their age? And based on all those questions, we'll be able to figure out what needs to be done next. Do we need to target a population? Do we need to use a specific vaccine? Do we need to drop one of the vaccines? And hopefully that, that's how things will go in the next year, two years or so. Boy, this discussion has really changed in the last couple of years, hasn't it? Yeah, Um Absolutely. The, I mean, this sheds a completely different light on all of this, this, this pandemic. Well, it, it, it's, it'll just draw so much attention to this. Yes, absolutely. And uh, there's a lot of learning, as you mentioned, from this. Another one we haven't touched on is humans' interaction with animals. Virtually every mm. pandemic we've seen, including Ebola, comes as a result of humans having close interactions with animals. Same thing with SARS, same thing with COVID, same thing with MERS in, in the Arabian Peninsula. So, Understanding that will also help us prevent pandemics from occurring ever again. The less interaction we have with live animals, separating that out, the less likelihood we'll have another pandemic. Good point. Dr. Alan uh, Vaisman with us, infectious disease specialist with the uh, University Health Network. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Greatly appreciated. Be well. Thank you for having me. Uh, the premier just finishing up his uh, a news conference. Uh, kind of boring, really. It kind of got political. Uh, we're debating whether to pull out of it, pull out of it, and then you know, back to the question and answer, and here we go. And then at the end, boom! <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. And then at the end, boom, uh, simply because um, uh, you can see the tone is changing. And finally, uh, the provinces are getting ticked off with being blamed for the lack of vaccine. And it's the federals that just the federal government that just cannot get this stuff delivered. Uh, here's a very frustrated premier, Doug Ford, uh, and uh, and his view of the federal government. Yeah, well, very, very good question. This all goes back, and I'm, I'm as frustrated as they, they come. We're expecting uh, some Moderna. We're supposed to get it this week. The third time now is delayed. We're getting it sometime next week. The AstraZeneca uh, that we were supposed to get out into the pharmacies, uh, we don't even we don't even get a date. We don't have a clue. How can you plan uh, when, the, when the feds aren't even giving us a date? If they could give us a date, we'd be able to uh, expand the, the pharmacies right across the, the province we're doing. There's going to be a, a point next week, that, and actually there is right now, that pharmacies have run out. Shoppers Drug Mart, as the general just told me, um, they have 100,000 appointments. Like the feds need to, you know, I've, I've been very diplomatic and I've been very complimentary and collaborative with the federal government. Enough's enough. This is becoming a joke. We need more vaccines. Simple as that. And, and we've shown uh, the people of Ontario, we have the capacity, we have the infrastructure. There's uh, 82, 83,000 people vaccinated yesterday. We have hundreds of thousands of people waiting in line. And at the end of the day, they, they've dropped the ball, Major League. And uh, Mayor Watson, you know, he's, he's, he's a great mayor too. He's doing a great job. I ask all the mayors, all the regions, start calling your federal MPs. Mayor, walk down the street to the parliament building, start banging down their door. This is the root cause. We do not have enough vaccines from the federal government. And it's, uh, it's a joke, 55th in the world. I've, I've done, sorry. I've, I'm, you know, this is frustrating as anything. I think the premier has just said what we're all feeling, uh, but somehow just don't want to admit. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. Well, it looks like we can finally put your grandfather's old conservative party out to pasture. This week, the Supreme Court of Canada not only ruled in the jurisdictional case over who could tell who what to do between the provinces and the feds, Regarding climate change, they firmly stated it was real and needs the focus of all provinces to succeed in addressing it. Bam! I wonder how those extremists in the Conservative Party who refused to declare that it was real at their last party convention are feeling. Maybe the same way as those Trump supporters who thought that COVID-19 was a hoax until people started dying. If they have learned anything, the common sense of the Conservative Party, if it still exists, will rise and use this to reclaim the party from extremists and perhaps proclaim the fact the world is round while they're at it. The big question will be, where is the leadership to reclaim this party, bring it into this millennium and provide progressive opposition all Canadians deserve? If we can't admit a problem, how do we find a solution? Because clearly they have no choice but to roll the extremists to the curb, like all parties should do. The solution is when we meet in the center. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, I, I want to get to uh, Michael Tobe here because I know he's got to run, and we're going to try to squeeze this in uh, as quickly as we can. Michael Tobe is with Destroy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am indeed, Scott. Hope you are too. Uh, we've only got a limited amount of time here, obviously, because the uh, Premier's press conference ran a little long. Okay. But I-, I wanted to get your take on what happened with the Supreme Court uh, ruling that came down in regard uh, to the provinces and uh, the whole issues over climate change and such. And uh, obviously, last week at the convention, uh, conservative convention, uh, they-, they didn't vote on a statement saying that it was real. Blah, blah, blah. Does this exactly. change the discussion within the Conservative Party? Can an Aaron O'Toole now say to the fringe elements of the party, this is done, this is over, can we move on? Where are they right now? Well, uh, starting at the back end first, yes, no, the Conservatives definitely can say that. Uh, look, the, the majority of 
conservative supporters believe that climate change is real in some way, shape, or form. And there's a variety of ways to prove it. I mean, one, it was already in the policy book to begin with. The, the line that we're talking about, which was one of three paragraphs, which was proposed as a policy resolution, which would have stated, quote unquote, climate change was real, would have been actually located had it been approved two paragraphs below the first reference to climate change in that section dealing with the environment. So the Conservative Party always already believes that. I know that their critics in the opposition like to point out otherwise, but the vast majority of conservatives do. I mean, even Abacus Data put out a poll where it emphasized that about 18% of conservative supporters don't believe that climate change is real. But you have to look at it the other way. 82% actually do, which is actually very good. And that's a very good number that most political parties would be, would be happy with because not every political, uh, par- sorry, not every party supporter thinks the same way. They're, they're all different. We're not robots. We do think differently on the issue. And by and large, that issue has already been resolved, and that's why Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, says that the discussion is over. The fact that the grassroots erupted a bit, they did. But quickly, to tie it into the Supreme Court, you're right. The ruling, which was unsurprising, I mean, I think most yeah. people thought that it would go through. There are a couple of interesting points to it, though, as well. I mean, number one, the ruling was 6-3. to three. It was not unanimous by any means. And that's about right, because about 30 to 35 percent of the country not opposed to climate change, not opposed to policies for the environment, not opposed to doing anything, recognizes that the wording that was actually put forward, much like the, you know, the conservative policy resolution, the wording just wasn't perfect. And there's obviously issues that they have with it. But yes, I mean, ultimately, in the end, overall, whether you believe this is the right thing to do, and I've always said that the carbon tax is regressive. It will hurt the economy. It will hurt jobs. It will hurt business. It is not to our benefit, A, to add any sort of a tax, but B, this tax is a terrible one. And the nonsense that it's revenue neutral, that people just go on and on about using BC as an example. I think I've talked about it with you. If you actually look at papers and stuff, it's actually far from it. So this tax is not beneficial, but it is legal. It is constitutional. The Supreme Court has given his blessing, so there's nothing more to talk about. So for Aaron O'Toole, he has to get away from the kerfuffle that happened at the Conservative Convention. He has to show, tell the people, the grassroots party supporters, that this is now the law of the land, and we need to come up with a better idea, a better solution that helps people, that helps the free market, that helps the private sector, helps the public sector, helps all Canadians. So that's the task at hand. So is this issue over for the Conservative Party? I mean, uh, is that it with that fringe element that keeps trying to sell this, which at the end ends up stealing the narrative? Look, unfortunately, every political party has a fringe element on the right and on the left. It just exists. The Liberals have it. The NDP have it. I know they like to say they don't, but they do. And we see them come up, you know, out of the woodwork every so often and rise on issues like this. Look, in hindsight, I agree, Scott, that it, it's unfortunate that it happened at the Conservative Convention. It would have been wiser if they had just t- basically taken that issue off the table like they did for an issue with abortion, in the sense that not that these issues aren't important, but they can obviously become very controversial and can lead to very precarious situations like the one facing here. However, but in terms of what others want to think on that, conservatives will think whatever they want to think on this particular issue. The vast majority of conservatives believe that, again, climate change is real in some way, shape, or form. It may not be to all the listeners' liking, but they certainly believe it exists. And I think that's what the goal has to be, that the issue is over. You know, the grassroots spoke. They were irritated by the wording. They didn't like the way that policy resolution came out. So they voted it down. That's fine. But the key here is that Aaron O'Toole is the leader, and it's his word and his policies that precede anything else. A policy book, you can look up, you can go on the website and read it. All the things, concepts, ideas that the Conservative Party stands for, but ultimately it's the leader's decision for he or she to take a policy stance or take a policy position and defend it to the hilt. And believe it or not, most of those policy positions that a leader takes tend to be either somewhat similar or quite a lot different than what's ever sitting in a policy book.
All right, Michael, I know we got to run. We'll have to continue this later because, uh, yeah, I could do a little few more questions on this. Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Uh, Michael, as always, thanks so much. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. All right. Uh, we certainly heard the clip of, uh, of Doug Ford on the, at the end of his press conference today, uh, unleashing, unleashing his frustration, uh, with the federal government. And, uh, you know, we've been saying this all along. Uh, everybody keeps lambasting the provinces. Uh, they aren't doing this. They're not doing that. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. And it seems that the prime minister just walks away with a smile on his face and gets off scot-free. And let's be honest, we are where we are, 50th whatever in the world, uh, because we simply do not have vaccine. And you cannot expect Europe and the rest of the world to give us vaccine and watch us move ahead of them while they're trying to vaccinate their own people. Uh, and you can understand why Europe is upset as vaccine goes out the door to the highest bidder and their people get left behind. Canada, the second biggest purchaser of vaccine from the EU. So there's the sunny ways at the end of the day. We simply don't produce it. And instead, we're using the gold card to buy it out from underneath everybody else. And it isn't coming in yet because those people are getting ticked off that other countries are getting uh, vaccinated before them. Because, again, it's gone out the door instead of into the arms of their own citizens. So how has all of this affected approval of the leaders, the leadership and such? Uh, and again, circling back around, we saw uh, the premier today, Premier Ford, uh, change his tone a bit and say, you know, I've been supportive. I've done this. But, man, you know, we're dropping the ball here. Uh, and uh, support for the government in Ontario remains steady, uh, as uh, a new Leger poll says. Let's bring in Andrew Enns, Executive VP of Leger, and with us now. Uh, thanks for the time, Andrew. I hope you're doing well. Oh, thanks, Scott. I'm doing really well, and I hope likewise with you. We're trying. So uh, <laughs> what is this new Leger poll telling us? Well, the, the Leger poll is, uh, you know, that we uh, that we just came out of field is is as you uh, said in your lead in the government is is uh, the provincial government is is I would say faring reasonably well all things considered. It's been it's been an unprecedented year uh, with uh, all kinds of uh, un, unprecedented challenges and and lots of ups and downs. And as you've you've talked about, I mean, uh, there there's been no shortage of criticisms of the provincial government in different aspects of this pandemic. But through it all, um, I think if the if the uh, governing party were to look at the results of our poll, they would feel fairly fairly uh, you know comfortable with them. They're a point and a half off of what uh, where they polled in the in the election in 2018 that got them a good a good majority. So I think they're they're feeling good about that. And and I think probably even more extraordinary to me, Scott, was the. Um, was the sort of approval ratings with Premier Ford. Um, you know, he's been front and center almost every day on this mm. issue, uh, on the good days and on those bad days. And uh, and I would argue that, you know, I don't know, I haven't been keeping count, but there's there's been a good a good number of those, those tough days because it's just yeah. been that type of issue. And, um, you know, I would say more so than any other Premier in this country, he's been out front, uh, you know, Taking these things head on and, and uh, accepting his lumps when he when he comes due, and uh, you know he's got fifty percent of the of the province uh, basically saying, look, um, you know he's doing a he's doing a good job. I have a good opinion of him, and sure he's got detractors, uh, but I would say from a for a politician uh, who had that much exposure, this isn't bad. This isn't bad. It appears that citizens, um, certainly during the first year of this pandemic, they want to see, doesn't matter what your stripe is they, or what your level of government is, they want to see everybody rowing in the same direction on this. Yeah. They want to see collaboration. Well, yeah, you know, and I, I, I think you're right for sure, Scott. And, and uh, you know, I think uh, to some degree, I think the, 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 the people in Ontario are comfortable with how the with how the government the provincial government has managed the pandemic uh you know you see on the health and safety you see numbers where uh, we're over 60 percent say uh you know they've done a good job on the economy which again you know that's a that's been a real tough one given the lockdowns and stuff and you still have a majority 55 percent saying doing a good job uh so you know i think the 
you know, I, I think there's always room for improvement, but I do feel the government has uh, has demonstrated that they're trying to, uh, you know, stay focused on on what's important. So. Uh, obviously, these numbers earlier, it will be interesting to see how this skews after uh, you poll uh, uh, post-budget, because uh, obviously the budget came out, provincial budget came out this week, and right. I think a lot were expecting some austerity of some sort or, or what have you, uh, but instead it was, you know, full throttle, wide open, here we go, and, and you know, as a guy that's been around the, on the planet for over 50 <laughs> years, I'm thinking this is the most liberal-sounding conservative budget I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. <clears throat> I caught a few of the a uh, few of the highlights and some emails, and, and watched a bit of media coverage. And yeah, I think it did probably catch people off guard. I will say this: um, I think uh, you know Doug Ford is where he's at uh, because he's he's a, he's a good politician and he's a pretty good retail politician. I think he's he knows where the where the sentiment of 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 people are at this particular junction. Um, we've seen it in some of our national polling that, I mean, the de- deficit numbers are, are, are extraordinary. As extraordinary as this pandemic's been, we've, we've got deficit numbers that probably match that. But people aren't at this stage of the game ready for real serious belt tightening. They still feel uneasy about things, about, about uh, you know, individual safety, uh, personal kind of, uh, you know, security, as well as the economy. And, and they feel that, you know, at this stage, now is not the time. Will that last forever? No. But but right now, he's probably not, uh, he's not out of step. But you're right, we'll be in field in a month, and we'll figure out if, if that budget is uh, helping or hurting him. We certainly, uh, certainly before the pandemic, and I guess we're seeing this after as well, um, the world pretty divisive. The politics either extreme one way or extreme the other way. Um, you know, I, I've often asked people, do you think the pandemic will bring us together, make us a bit more empathetic? Um, and again, it just seems that the fringes on either side are driving the conversation or driving the narrative. When we're seeing this sort of thing happen, uh, are Canadians looking for the center? Is Are they looking for somebody to, to meet in the middle on all of this, the solution in the middle, in the center? You know, I, or is I it still very pand- divisive? You're either on this side or you're on yeah. that side. You know, I think I think the pandemic has to some degree uh, taken the edge off the partisanship, at least, you know, in Canada. I mean, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll leave the conversation to our neighbors to the south for another day. But yeah. but in Canada, I get the sense that it's um, that Canadians of all, of, of all political stripes see this as a as an unprecedented challenge to uh, to society and, and how we've sort of conducted ourselves. And and they expect our leaders whatever party to step up and do the right thing and 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 actually see that highlighted in our poll to some degree scott where i look at some of those where we ask specifically how the provincial government's doing managing the economy and managing the the health and safety of 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 ontarians and when we looked at that those results by by the partisan support like you do see significant numbers of ndp supporters and liberal supporters and green supporters giving kudos to the government's performance on those things. So it yeah. tells me that that the that there is a bit of a bridging of the divide. The other thing I'll say to to kind of uh, to go to your point is that it's been very challenging for opposition parties in this in, in this environment like the pandemic situation for the year. It it's opposition parties are there to criticize and suggest like different ways. And this is simply not an issue that lends itself to that. Uh, it's really about all hands on deck. And, you know, it's tough on them. Like, I, I feel for, for the NDP and the Liberals right now in Ontario because, you know, um, it's been hard to make much traction, you know, in terms of uh, uh, that may change as we shift out of the pandemic and mo- more into the economic recovery. But, mm. but I do think that there is this view that, you know, park the partisan politics you know, let's help the country here. Fascinating time to be in your business. Uh, Andrew ends with us, executive VP of Leger, uh, showing strong support for uh, Premier Doug Ford in Ontario. Andrew, thank you for the time. Be well. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Uh, hopefully we talk again. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, as we uh, weave our way through a global pandemic and, uh, you know, it was funny. We were talking to Paul Johnson from the emergency health table in the city and, and we were talking about protocol and he was saying, you know, uh, we were saying that a year in, we all know the protocol. It's like at the beginning of this, do I wear a mask? Do I not wear a mask? Do I do this? Do I that? And everybody was complaining about the mixed messaging. We all know that now. And that is what is going to get us out. Uh, you know, till we can get a vaccine, the masking, the distancing, and of course, washing the hands. Got to stay away. Got to keep back. That's the same advice that we've been hearing uh, for the year. Some, uh, you know, we, we hear of exercise, getting outside is a great thing. Uh, some people have lost weight. Some people have put weight on. Uh, it's affected a lot of different people in a lot of different ways, including with sleep. Are you having trouble sleeping? Uh, it's interesting because I never thought of this. And then I think once we hit the year mark, maybe January, February, I started to notice this, which was odd because the first year it didn't seem to to be an issue. So let's bring in Dr. Raymond Gottschuk, medical doctor at the Sleep Disorders Clinic in Hamilton and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. well I am. Thank you very much for having me. So are you starting to see, or has this been going on through the pandemic, that people's people are having issues sleeping? Uh, yeah, this has been carrying on for quite a while now. Um, largely, there have been many factors, obviously, that have implicated uh, the concern, and that's our vulnerability, obviously, the concern about a lack of vaccines, as you so brilliantly alluded to. And then also, you know, the media, um, the, the sort of the news media has been very, very distressing over the last year and a half. Uh, you don't have to look very far to look down down the road at the U.S., to see how discouraging it was to see what was happening there with misinformation and just a really tough time. So the polarization within politics, you know, the the polarization within who has the vaccine and who doesn't uh, has really been very, very troublesome for people. So it's uh, too much all COVID all the time, and I'm certainly guilty of that on this show. Well, absolutely. And I had a patient uh, who was complaining of insomnia disturbance and I basically told her to stop watching CNN news and mm-hmm. you know stop reading about COVID. And she got back to me a couple of months later and said she's sleeping brilliantly now uh, because this stuff was just eating her up. And I think that's the concern. We see this Damoclean uh, onslaught from this virus, which is really awful. It's unpredictable and it can kill and really hurt young people. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the, the misunderstanding and and how people have approached this is sometimes it's, it's beyond comprehension. Uh, my mother who lived through it says this is like wartime without the bombs and bullets. Do we realize how much this is affecting us? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, but there are a couple of things uh, that, that uh, we need to recognize is that the good news is the brilliance of science to actually bring in vaccines at a rate that we would have never anticipated. And I suppose the analogy is uh, when people say that, you know, why should I take a vaccine that has been developed in a year? You know, if you go back to when uh, Ford made his first car, it took how many days to make a car? Mm. They don't make, make them in an hour. So technology does push us forward. And, and this is our savior. And, and it can be modified uh, with great rapidity and en passant. They can actually make a new vaccine based on how the mutations occur incredibly rapidly. Mm. So uh, I, I guess it's obvious why we are feeling the way we are, and, and, and obviously this is going to affect our sleep. So give us a bit of give us a couple of tips, a couple of guidelines. How you, you were talking about your uh, another patient and said just back away from the news and such. Uh, give us some tips on how we can help get a better night's sleep. Well, I'm, certainly one of the things that that keeps on being raised is the access to. Uh, electronics and certainly the, the mobility of electronics now years gone by we would get on our computers and they just weren't mobile then they became more mobile to tablets and cell phones so now younger people especially are really struggling with this and I think we need to appreciate that for the older folks like me uh, you know some impairment in my ability to go out and have a meal or go on a trip that's one thing but for young people where they are really sort of governed by their peer groups and their association with friends. This has become incredibly difficult. Couple that with young people are spending anywhere between one and three hours on average on social media and the distortion of lives within social media and how it impacts them has really become a massive problem. 
And I think that's what we need to try and do if, if you want advice is to try and avoid using social media as much as possible. And if you do, use it earlier in the evening. Try and avoid being exposed to bright light, especially blue light, which really switches on the wake switch in our brains. Obviously, try and avoid too much alcohol close to bedtime and caffeine as well. But those are sort of motherhood statements. And try and keep a, a, a very good schedule. We, our sleep is really determined by when we wake up. Um, and so if we have a set wake-up time and have a pattern, the sleep is much better. But the young people are falling asleep with their phones on and they're getting messages at night. And yeah. sleep texting has become you know, one of the uh, novel disorders. Sleep texting. Yeah. Oh, my. Uh, and, and, you know, with us in some uh, working from home or their schedules completely different, uh, you have to come up with that new schedule and stick to it. You, you talked about it's important to have routine. Absolutely. And I think the one benefit, you know, and I say this very, very loosely, uh, of this is that a lot of people have actually managed to sleep longer because one of the the distributing factors for young people, adolescent people, is that they can go to bed late and they can sleep late. Mm-hmm. And so if you allow them to sleep later, they make up for that sleep deficit largely. And so that has been helpful in some way. But I think the isolation and, you know, coupled with, with the distortion of life within social media has become very, very difficult for people to manage and deal with. And that has, you know, it's pushed young folks into depression, and we need to understand that. It Mm. is very, very difficult for them. Uh, You know, the the mood disturbance that has arisen because of this this pandemic and then coupled, the benefit of social media is obviously connectivity. But, you know, to that degree, when you're connected for five hours or more, they see massive decrements in sleep quality. So try and limit the amount of social media exposure. Uh, obviously, we're heading, uh, we're in spring, days are longer. How important to get outside? How important to get exercise? Uh, well, Scott, you've absolutely nailed it. You know, I think we, we know that bright light exposure, especially in the morning, is a very good Zeitgeber. We call that Zeitgeber in sleep medicine. It sort of cues your body to say, this is daytime, get out there, move around. And obviously, rather than sitting hunched over, over a cell phone, uh, versus going out and taking a brisk walk and going out into our beautiful forests. You know, we, we have some of the loveliest walks in, in this part of the world and, and use those areas, you know, and get out and exercise because that, that really is uh, an enhancement of our spirit and soul and that uh, the health benefits are massive. What do you say, doctor, and we're almost out of time here, to those that are thinking, man, what's wrong with me? This is normal for what we're going through, is it not? Unfortunately, it has become the normal, and I think people who need help need to be guided. Uh, you know, if they they need assistance from their physicians or or their counselors or their, you know, the the health strategists who can help them, they should make themselves available to that because this can be very isolating. You know, given what it's actually foisted upon us. Dr. Raymond Gottschuk has been with us, medical director of the Sleep Disorders Clinic in Hamilton, uh, talking about many Canadians reporting a loss of sleep during this uh, global pandemic. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. My pleasure. Then. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.